From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. As Labor loses party discipline over tax cuts, the coalition enters into an ugly post-mortem of its leadership change. Paul Bongiorno on the jostle for positions before Parliament returns next week. So, Paul, um, you ready to jump in? (coughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm ready. I've cleared the throat, but not the brain. (laughs) Okay, Paul, who might we say was the surprise figure in politics this week? Do you think it's Joel Fitzgibbon? Well, I suppose that's always uh, something we could have an argument about, but there is no doubt the contribution of Joel Fitzgibbon to the overall tax debate this week helped the government more than it helped the Labor Party. Paul Bongiorno is a columnist for the Saturday paper. It's uh, good to remember who Joel Fitzgibbon is. He's the Shadow Minister for Agriculture and Resources, but he's also the member for Hunter, which is a big coal mining uh, seat in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Uh, He came into the parliament in 1996 and he plays the role as the convener of the right-wing faction in New South Wales, so quite an influential internal party political role there. So, Elizabeth, with that background, you can understand that when he went on Radio National Breakfast on Monday to give an interview... Joel Fitzgibbon, welcome back to breakfast. ...that limits Labor's options in the tax cuts package, it reverberated. I'm one very happy New South Wales MP this morning, France. (laughs) And what did he say in the interview? Well, his starting point was that you can't deny the punters a tax cut from opposition. He emphasised, particularly so soon after an election... ...where we had our backsides kicked. And we can't afford to give our political opponents the opportunity to blame us for a bad economy, an economy which has gone bad on their watch. So when you say he agreed, in fact, that the third stage of the government's $158 billion tax cuts package should be decoupled because it's very expensive at $95 billion. And he said while splitting stage three out of the package should be our first objective, that is the opposition's, he conceded that if the government refuses, Labor has only two choices, support the whole thing or support none of it. Now, the latter option would deny low to middle income earners much needed tax relief, tax relief we ourselves were promising during the election campaign. Okay, so that... That very answer was a capitulation to the government. And what motivates the kind of freelancing that, that he exhibits in this interview on RN? Well, I think the shock election result is is the key motivator after six years of pretty good, in fact, uh, excellent internal and external party discipline from the Labor Party. Joel Fitzgibbon and others say, maybe we should all speak out a bit more. We want more freedom so that there are checks and balances about policies and directions. In fact, he said last week that Labor should move away from this paradigm that uh, a comment by a regional member or anyone else that is slightly different from the broader party view becomes front page story. Mm, That's good and it's very democratic, but it's also politically naive. But there's also sort of an element of survival here, isn't there? Because Fitzgibbon didn't have a great result this election, though he did maintain his seat. 
That's right, Elizabeth. Look, it's all about his survival. His primary vote collapsed. It's gone from a very safe seat to an marginal seat. One nation in the Hunter in New South Wales recorded a primary vote of 22% in his electorate. Look, he does blame Labor's botched campaign. He says the attack on the top end of town, you know, taking from the rich to give to the poor, had a fatal flaw. He says it failed to define who the rich are. Now, this is very interesting. His coal miners, he said, on their $160,000 a year with potentially a negatively geared house were entitled to ask themselves whether we were talking about them. And he says the rest is history. And were these people part of how Labor defined the top end of town? What did Fitzgibbon say about this? Fran Kelly in the interview didn't ask him to spell that out, Mm. but the clear inference from his answer is that he doesn't believe his coal miners' $168,000 a year are the top end of town. And that's probably because to get to that figure, many of them would have to uh, work, you know, long hours, overtime. The other reality too is that uh, coal mining in the Hunter is underground, it's extremely dangerous, and as a result, it does carry compensation by way of higher wages. Mm. But what's the the consequence of classifying these people as not being rich, because nonetheless $168,000 a year is a huge salary. Well, this this is another argument that's around because uh, even Anthony Albanese says that he doesn't classify people earning $200,000 as rich. Well, that puts them in the top 2% of wage and salary earners. I think what it probably shows is that it's a bit of a dead end if you're going to be, you know, playing the rich off against the poor. It's better to talk about social justice and giving everybody a fair go, distributive justice, if you like, try to lift people up and encourage their aspiration. This is what delay is now talking about. This is what Jim Chalmers is on about. Do you think Labor's lost some perspective here or is this just a recalibration post-election that we should have seen coming? I think it's gaining a perspective. I think it uh, wrongly assumed that Australians were fed up with trickle-down economics. Labor judged that that had had its day. Well, it's clear from the election result that it hadn't and that they needed to be smarter in the way in which they wanted to redistribute income to have a more just society. Back to Fitzgibbon's view that the tax cuts have to be passed if they can't be split. Are there others inside Labor that share that opinion? Look, there certainly are, and some of them, both uh, in the Shadow Cabinet and in the broader caucus, have been talking off the record. But Peter Khalil, the right-wing Labor member from Melbourne, he spoke out in a very similar vein to uh, Joel Fitzgibbon um, a few days before, possibly even inspired Fitzgibbon to uh, take the bat and run with it. Khalil says that we lost the election, we should be uh, passing the uh, tax cuts package that was about the only thing that the electorate remembers that the government actually took to the election. But it does seem, and we know this from the result of the shadow cabinet discussions on Monday, that it's not a majority view. We've actually got a split shadow cabinet and a split Labor Party on the best way forward. We'll be right back. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. 
For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, there's a split now inside Labor. You've got some senior figures who are freelancing on these tax cuts. What's the official line from the opposition on the coalition package? Well, this is quite interesting because um, there's no doubt the, the election was a watershed in more ways than one, particularly in terms of what Labor's policy positions now are. Everything's up for grabs. But on Monday after the Shadow Cabinet meeting, the uh, leader, Anthony Albanese, and the Treasury spokesman, Jim Chalmers, came out and um, the Shadow Cabinet performed a, a policy somersault. Labor in the election was opposed to stage two of the tax cuts package, but now they've said they accept stage two and more than that it should be brought forward. Now stage two gives tax relief for those earning up to $120,000. The government wants it legislated now but on the government's timetable it wouldn't come in till after the election. And um, Chalmers, it quite interestingly, said he knows what aspiration's all about. He came from a more depressed area of Brisbane. He had to struggle like everyone else in that area, Logan City, to make good, to get an education and to get on with life. He says that's what we should be about in Australia and the government should play its part. And what's happening elsewhere? Where are the Greens? There was a suspicion in the Labor Party that the Greens might try to make heroes of themselves. Some of them remember that Bob Brown actually was a crucial vote that enabled the sale of Telstra. He traded off some environmental policy for that. So I thought it'd be a good idea to talk to Richard Di Natale the leader of the Greens, he's utterly unimpressed with Labor's contortions. He told me there's not a chance in hell the Greens would support stage three of the tax package. He accuses Labor of being willing to betray 100 years of commitment to progressive taxation. He describes the $95 billion price tag and the flattening of the tax brackets to 30% as utterly obscene. Di Natale says this aspect of the package is taking us down the American path. And he says Fitzgibbon and Labor are taking the wrong lessons out of the election. Does he nonetheless think that the cuts will go through or? Well, look, I think he is a bit pessimistic. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is that Pauline Hanson, for example, is playing hard to get on stage three, but nobody in the parliament thinks that her two votes will in the end vote this package down. And then you've got, of course, Cory Bernardi, who's going to vote for it. But more to the point, midweek, talking to Rex Patrick from Centre Alliance, he thought they were pretty close to a positive outcome. What he's wanting in writing is details from the government, how they'll assure gas supply in Australia and uh, what measures they'll put in place to keep a lid on gas prices that therefore would bring down energy prices because they fear, and Patrick said this a few times now, that what's the use of giving tax cuts if energy prices immediately gobble them up? Okay. So it looks like the coalition will get that package through one way or the other. Di Natale seems to have formed that view. Has it then been a good week for the coalition? 
Well, look, you'd have to say that uh, the coalition would probably be uh, happier this week than any of the others since the election. But what we're beginning to see is the season of what Paul Keating would call open heart surgery on the Liberal Party. Okay. Um, So... We're beginning now to see the revelations, the inside stories and the lies that went on behind the scenes over the Turnbull coup. This week, Sky News had its Bad Blood, New Blood documentary. He's been given command and he's taken command. It was ferocious. It was traumatic. I thought it was all over for the government. It had two Liberals uh, in the first uh, night. They put on the record evidence that Morrison indeed had blood on his hands in that coup that toppled Malcolm Turnbull. Morrison denies it. He denies it in the documentary. But there's no doubt his closest supporters not only marshaled numbers... They engineered a switch whereby five of them voted for the spill to get rid of uh, Turnbull from the leadership, and then they voted for Morrison in the runoff against Peter Dutton and Julie Bishop. One Liberal MP who was close to Malcolm Turnbull, but he says it defies belief that his colleagues Alex Hawke and Ben Morton, the numbers men for, uh, for Morrison, would have been working so assiduously if they weren't sure they had a candidate. In other words, this doesn't happen by accident. Exactly. If it quacks like a duck and waddles like a duck, it is a duck. (laughs) What does that tell us about Morrison, Paul? Well, what I think it says about Morrison is that we have here a very canny, shrewd and cunning politician one that won the unwinnable election, uh, and he won it by applying all these traits. So I'd I'd say it's a sure signal that he's not to be underestimated. Now, whether more tell-all books that are due out dent his credibility is an open question. And then, of course, down the track, we'll have Turnbull's own account, a bigger picture. What we know is he has a trail of WhatsApp messages documenting what he sees as treachery. So all of this will put the uh, focus on the Liberal Party and I can tell you one of the lessons that Jim Chalmers spoke about at the National Press Club uh, midweek and what uh, Anthony Albanese has let it be known is they're not going to let the Liberals off the hook this time quite as easily as they did in the run-up to the election. And what's the mood in Canberra before Parliament comes back to sit for the first time next week? Well, the mood in uh, Canberra is a bit uh, expectation, you know, like we still have a tight parliament. The government only has a majority of one. There still is the potential for people to miss votes. Also, we've got a new leader of the House in Christian Porter because Christopher Pine has retired. So it'll be interesting to see what the new dynamic will be. Of course, we'll have a cock of a hoop uh, liberals and we'll have a reinvigorated and, if you like, a confirmed rather than a reconfirmed prime minister in Scott Morrison and now there in his own right as the elected Prime Minister. And we'll see how the new Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, measures up as the leader in the Parliament against Morrison. So hmm, plenty of expectation. Things will certainly be interesting. And we should remember that Chinese adage that you're condemned to live in interesting times. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Elizabeth. Bye. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. 
Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Elsewhere in the news, it has been revealed that Malcolm Turnbull had intended to prevail on the Governor-General, Peter Cosgrove, not to commission Peter Dutton as Prime Minister, had Dutton won the vote against his leadership. The Australian newspaper reports that Turnbull put this plan to the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, who warned against it and said he would publicly rebuke Turnbull should the then Prime Minister ask Cosgrove to intervene in such a way. And Alex Sigley, an Australian student who is living in North Korea and running tours there, has been arrested in Pyongyang. It's not clear why he has been detained or what charges he faces. Christian Porter said that it was, quote, a matter of the utmost seriousness. Australia does not have an embassy in the North Korean dictatorship and is relying on support from Swedish diplomats based in the country. 7am is produced by Emil Klein, Ruby Schwartz and Atticus Basto with Michelle Macklem. Eric Jensen is our editor. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Equate Studio. Also, have a look at our sister publications, The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. A new issue of The Monthly is on stands Monday. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you next week.